Hi, this is Jeremy Gilbert from ACFM. And this is one of our new series of microdoses, extra bits to supplement the main episodes. This is the full audio of the interview I did with Mika Narva, a long-term feminist activist and noted scholar, uh, for our episode on consciousness raising. And we hope you enjoy it. Okay. Well, I'm Mika Narva, and um, I joined the women's movement in 1969, and um, I was older than quite a lot of the other people who joined the women's movement. I, I went to my first meeting when my youngest kid was about three weeks old and I took him along in a caricot. And um, I, I was probably a week, I, I was probably 30, so, uh, or, or, or very close to 30. So I was a, a quite, there were few women older than me, but not many. Most of the people involved in those early days were quite young, in their early 20s. And, um, but some of the more influential ones were in their early 30s. There was really nobody over 35. And uh, I, I was very pregnant when I met David Slaney, who was one of the activists in the, uh, at, at LSE in the 1960s. And he came to dinner with somebody in the house and he started telling me about this new group that was starting. Uh, it was composed of a lot of American women who were um, involved in VSC or were with... What's VSC? The uh, Vietnam Solidarity okay. Campaign. And where was this? This was North London. This was North London, in Tufnell Park, actually. Right, right. And um, uh, although at the time I was living just off the Finchley Road, mm. And I thought, and he said, oh, and some of them have kids, they're thinking of different ways of bringing up kids together. And it sounded really boring because it wasn't anything that I wanted to be doing at that stage. I thought that's the last thing I want to be doing uh, politically, but I do want to be more engaged politically. Um, But then I discovered that it was actually much more radical than that. And um, so I went along. And where was it? Where it, was the meeting? The meeting was in Tufnell Park. The where? In a house? Oh, in, in Karen Slaney, well, Dave Slaney and Karen Slaney's flat in Dartmouth Park Hill. And it was a really small room. And there were about 15 people there in the room, or maybe fewer. Um, and a good number of them were American. Right. So one of the most significant women and the most influential was Shelley Wirtis, whose article, key article, she was a psychologist and she had a PhD, and she'd written a critique of John Balby's theories of maternal separation. Really? And for me, that was absolutely a seminal piece in my commitment to the women's movement, my consciousness raising, and uh, other people have mentioned other key texts or other key events. But for those of us with young kids, that was it. Right, because Balby had really... Yeah, he. this is for the recording. I mean, yes. But Balby had really was one of the, the key figures in the post-war period. Shall I say something about yeah, that? Yeah, you, you do. Okay, well, actually, my mother was quite into psychoanalysis and had a, quite a large collection of books. And I remember taking Bowlby's book, Child Care and the Growth of Love, to me, with me, to school, to the school I was at when I was about 16. So I read it then, and it, it was a critique. Basically, what he exposed and what he talked about was the damage done to children who lost parents during the war and who were brought up in hospitals, often with no personal contact at all. So, uh, and, and so from that, he developed this notion of the trauma done to children who didn't have constant care from 
their mothers. And he shifted it around, but it was popularized by Dr. Spock, who was a very liberal child care guru uh, in the 1960s. And um, so it was really kind of taken for granted that if we didn't want to damage our children, we as mothers, we mothers had to be around most of the time. And he says at one point, um, if you go shopping uh, from time to time, you probably, and you leave your child with a nice carer, you probably won't be doing any damage. (laughs) Something like that. So it was really quite traumatic and intense. And so, yes, it had influenced me and it did influence women of my generation, even though I'd actually have a much more um, progressive and... uh, independent existence up to that point. I mean, I'd lived in Mexico, I'd lived in New York for three years, uh, and uh, I'd been uh, an artist and I'd, uh, I'd, I'd done an awful lot of things uh, and been involved in revolution left-wing politics, but I had two older children born in 64 and 66. The youngest was born in 69. And um, this was like a revelation. The first women's meetings were a kind of revelation. Hang on, before we get into that, I want to get into it now because this is we get people are going to like there's there's a whole audience who's going to like listening to the whole thing. Okay. And I think the thing about Bowie is really interesting because I, I think to and to clarify the, the sort of exactly what the sort of ideology of childcare that Doctor Spot promoted was because it because uh, to kind of to, to sort of my generation like I'm in my late forties and I've got children. Uh, that'll sound kind of weirdly familiar and unfamiliar because we sort of grew up when I first had kids. I was basically presented with, by my friend, basically by my friends who were ten years older than me. Um, with there were two alternative theories of parenting, and one was this one based on sort of anthropology of indigenous people, which was attachment parenting, which is again you're never supposed to leave the child alone, but it's in a very different social context, in a very different ideal social context. It's not in the ideal context of the nuclear family and it's just the mum looking after it. So it's mum and dad basically both sleep with the baby all the time, mm. carry them everywhere, and ideally you're supposed to have a tribe of friends who also look after it. So you're basically trying to live in like some sort of indigenous communities. Yeah even some sort of Paleolithic community. So it's either that or it was this, you know, enforced separation, control, crying, you know. Uh, funnily enough, both of the people who lectured me with advice about that identified as anarchists, I remember. Uh, uh, identified as anarchists. Uh, one of them, they both did. But, so that's very different. Whereas, the, as I understand it, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, the Dr. Spock thing was sort of, it wasn't exactly either of those things. It was... It was that you, indeed, you can't ever leave the baby alone, but it's absolutely assumed that the person who will never leave the baby alone will be mum, and it'll be mum mostly on her own, and she'll be in the house, and she won't go to work, and she won't really, and there's no emphasis, there isn't this emphasis on the importance of a kind of network of peers and children and other people. Is that that all correct? Yeah, more or less. But one of the important things is to see, uh, and is it recording still? Yeah. Do you want me to go? Oh, okay. One of the important things about Dr. Spock was that he uh, was a very progressive kind of advisor in the period after Truby King. And so particularly, he said, look, babies will learn to eat when they want to. You give them a bit of food, they won't eat too much. They'll eat right, them what right, they feel right. like. And it's likewise with breastfeeding. You breastfeed when you when the baby wants something and you, and, and you don't have to wait rigidly for four hours before you, whereas some of the previous advisors... Right. Right, right. Were very, very strict. That's about right. Timing. They, well, the Truby King thing. That's you know, she's the antecedent of what in the of of the sort of um, I can't. Remember I think the it was woman, a he. Truby. He. Okay, I can't yeah. remember the. 
I can't remember the person now who pro- who was a state who promoted it just sort of 10, 15 years ago. But oh. it was this return to yes. you know, rigid rigid feeding times, bottle, exactly. bottle feeding from day one, oh. you know, con- you know, controlled crying. Yeah. You never go to them, you know, they'll get it. Yes. So these things sort of recur. But so, yeah, so, you're, so that's important. So the doctor spot thing, it was... It was, you know, it was reacting against that. And I, my doctor spot, my copy of Doctor Spock fell apart um, after a few years because I relied on it heavily. And definitely the way I brought up my kids in the 60s was according to Doctor Spock, except that he, he was not very progressive when it came to fathers and he did shift. And actually, I was on a television program with him Maybe. and some other people. I think I might have a video of it somewhere. Um, and that was in about 1970-something. And he was really a kind of enlightened, interesting guy. Um, and there were some other people on it about wh- how you should bring up babies and what was natural and what wasn't and so on. Um, I'd okay. Have, yeah. So you went from that. So you went from having been, you know, very much immersed in that. My, I remember this is all, my mum was in an, an NCT. She was a national doctor. Yes, child. me uh, too. Trust. Exactly. And, you know, teacher and stuff in the 70s. And I still remember when my sisters were, I remember, I knew who Dr. Spock was because... I didn't read. I wasn't old enough to read the books, but I, I knew I knew that was the person who told you how to look after babies. Yeah, and uh, I couldn't tell the difference from Mister Spock on the. Uh, on Star oh Trek. yes, of course. I thought, <laughs> I thought, I thought it was Mister Spock. Yes, on Star Trek. <laughs> I thought he was Doctor Spock. Okay, but anyway, so you come from that, and having been a mother who's been really, you know, sort of interpolated by that ideology. Yeah. And you, and you go into and the sort of uh, uh, also the National Childbirth Trust, um, which very much promoted sort of relatively natural childbirth. I had my three babies at home, um, and I was into uh, breastfeeding and and so on. And that actually became an issue in the context of the meetings. And I was talking to Sue O'Sullivan, who was in my group at the time. She was one of the Americans in that American group, which had sprung up independently of some of the other groups in London, but then kind of connected to them. Um, and Sue and I were laughing about the way that she she always accused me of glorifying motherhood. And I used to say, yes, I felt terrible about glorifying motherhood, but I did. And it was great for me. And she said, oh, well, it was really always a bit of a problem for her. And she felt bad because it seemed to be okay for me. And then, so, you know, there was those anxieties were expressed in that early meeting, uh, in those early meetings in Tufnell Park. And that was, and between 69, the autumn of 69, September 69, when I went to that first meeting, and uh, sort of uh, March 1970, I was in that Tufnell Park group. And after March, after the conference at Oxford, we expanded exponentially. That's the Women's Liberation Conference at Ruskin. Yes. And um, there were lots of people who wanted to join groups, so we had to split. So that was quite um, a wrench because we left behind some people that we got very close to, but we had to, and we did along geographical lines. And I then joined the Belsize Lane group, which was much nearer my house. And what was materially going on in the, on in the group? I think that's something people are really interested in these yeah. days and, and have a really vague idea about. Like you would turn up and... Well, um, there were a number of things that we wanted to do. I mean, first of all, people felt that they had to meet as women only. And that was a very radical thing. A radical demand, a radical structural difference from all the other political meetings around at the time. So... Um, 
and that it had to be a relatively small group. You couldn't have these massive meetings, that everybody should be uh, involved, everybody should be given a chance, that people shouldn't monopolize meetings. Um, there was no chair, there were no rules. That's why I still can't quite get all the rules in the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> and um, some people I know who've had these long histories on the left are much better at, at, at them. But uh, so we, it was sort of, we agreed things, we would discuss, we somehow or other would have, if there was anything to agree, we would try and do it by consensus rather than any other way. And uh, so uh, some of the people in the group were rather sophisticated. And so, but we did talk about women's issues rather than the, the wider issues, but some of them were there in London because of their, they had to flee from the States they were either, uh, you know, avoiding the draft or they were really being persecuted and um, were had lots of left-wing connections, often through their husbands or partners. Um, and uh, we talked about issues that, are, you know, things like childbirth, things like equal opportunities, but abortion, I mean, all of those initial issues. But we, we deliberately focused away from the kind of um, most important issues that we thought had been addressed by the suffragettes, that is to say the vote. So we were not, uh, we wanted it, I mean, we were into the personal as, as political and, and that meant that we had to talk about ourselves. I mean, there are a lot of uh, fantasies about what went on in those groups and I think a lot of and groups were very different. But um, both the first group and my second group had quite a few people with, quite a few women with young children. So uh, we were not typical of some of the groups with really young women. And um, so that was Sue Sullivan, Shelley, uh, and then when we, and Karen and uh, Angela Malamed, who lived around, still lives around the corner in Tufnell Park. And at that time, I lived in near Belsize Park. And then in that group, which sort of formed over the course of the 70s, and I was in for 10 years, um, just about all of us had young children. The people who didn't drifted away um, because a lot of it was about the difficulties of the sex sexual division of labor right. uh, and how and monogamy, marriage, and importantly, and this is really one of the most important things about what those groups did, they talked about political ideas, but they were all, they were polemical, but they were also about changing the way we lived. Right. So they were prescriptive in a way. And that was sometimes very stressful. And I remember <clears throat> thinking, God, I can't go on any longer because I'm going to have to change everything. And it's just too much. I can't change everything. So it was you mean changing household arrangements. Household arrangements, work. giving up. I mean, some of the demands are in, uh, are in the book here and actually in this initial article. And I did do say there, well, these were our demands, but whether or not we'll be able to achieve them is something else. So even in 1971, I was quite cynical about the possibilities of change. So what, tell us some of the demands. Well, they were about living together, uh, giving up all money and possessions. Okay. I mean, there were a few... Uh, brave communism. households that did that. Others were living together and sharing, or at least sharing a little bit more equally, childcare and child responsibility. I mean, even just helping would, was a kind of improvement. And we went down that avenue a bit. 
and certainly um and uh and were there <coughs> were there like, were there intellectual reference points in the in the in the discussions in yeah the groups? we did read things we definitely read things we read quite a lot of leaflets from america everything was sort of uh what, what was the what's the word for psycho psycho mimeograph yeah i mean i think uh Recycled, Psycho, yeah, it's like you know those things that those machines that put things out in large numbers. Oh, yeah, and, I know what you mean. Yeah, this is the one. <coughs> I don't know. Yeah, I've forgotten the name. And um, but there were all these pamphlets that came from America. So yeah, I mean, for example, Anna Coote and B. Campbell said that the most important seminal kind of influence for for them was the myth of the vaginal orgasm. That was one leaflet by Anna Coote. Other people said it was the Ford women's strike. Um, and for me, it was Shelley's crit- critique of Balby. So yeah, I mean, we did read stuff, and we and uh, if if you at the Oxford conference, there's a film about it, and I resaw it the other day because there was a little cluster of events, two days consecutive days, organised by Unfinished Histories, where, where the film was screened on one day, and then there was a whole lot of feminist theatre from the seventies that was reproduced and spoken about. Do you want to just say for, for a moment, actually, what was the critique? What was her critique of Bowlby? Um, her critique of Bowlby was that um, there could be multiple carers. Okay. Really, right. basically. Okay. I think what's interesting is anthropology became important for the early feminists because it was how people lived around the world and we shouldn't assume that there was only one way. And history, because things haven't always been the same. So, um, because everything was so profoundly naturalised in those early days that we didn't think that things could be different. And then the other thing was, um, Sheila's got a a lovely quote that I took and have used from Sheila Robottom, where she talks about how we couldn't even imagine how to get up and change the world. I mean, it's not that, and it's something else, but it's along those lines. so it was a matter of kind of opening our minds. And of course, we read Juliet Mitchell. She, uh, Sheila Rowbottom and Juliet Mitchell were the giants of those early days in Britain. Sheila Miss Barstone was so extreme and out on a limb. I mean, I make fun of her in another piece I wrote because she said, well, 10 people should get together and take care of everybody's children. Well, I mean, it was so unlikely when it's hard for two people to make contracts, yeah. you know, and to stay together. I mean, what are you going to do? Sort of, and are you going to leave babies with somebody else just because the 10 years are up and so on and so on. I mean, they were fantasies, really. But some very radical stuff was coming from uh, America. And... Um, and it seems like so. This is a kind of hobby horse of mine, but, it, but it's part. But I think, but it is really coming out in the remarks you're making that there's a certain, there's a rejection of kind of liberal individualist sort of solutions to these problems. Yeah, to be really a really important theme. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things that we were very critical of now the National Association or National Organization of Women in America because it was reformist. I remember once making a suggestion in the Tufnell Park meeting that was really kind of early on and this woman Ellen um, who was one of the American lot said that is so reformist (laughs) (laughs) and I hardly knew really what reformist meant I mean it was like a very concrete strategy that we could I can't remember what it was about except for I do remember her response maybe it was around more childcare because public childcare state childcare was minimal Mm -hmm. at that time and so some of the childcare that was developed was developed actually by groups of 
people independently of the state. We didn't make those reformist demands of the state. And I think probably would have been a lot better off if we had, actually, with hindsight. And we were very purist. We didn't want to particularly tell our story to the press in our way. We ignored the press because it was the bourgeois press. So we were absolutely rooted in the left-wing politics of that moment. And some people have represented um, feminism uh, with a different, in a different context. I mean, Anthony Barnett, who I was in Germany with recently, we were talking about the origins of, uh, you know, 68 and the origins of the, of the women's movement. He did uh, include it as something significant, but he had a shot of a woman walking down the middle of a railway carriage with almost no clothes on and these men sitting in, you know, and it was a sort of um, a businessman sitting there Want, and it was like an uh, it was it was uh, appealing to men to take the train or something like, that, and using a woman model and that was not our background. That was not what we reacted against because right, we right. were far away from it already. I see. We were absolutely rooted in the left, but it was the sexism of the left of men, our men, the men in the, on the left who ridiculed women who got up and said this is a women's issue, who abused and insulted and laughed at and so on and so on. I mean, it, it really was quite shocking when you read some of the accounts and you see some of the comments. And even in the film that was made about um, the first conference at Oxford, there's this one shot taken by a male cameraman and not edited out by the male director of this woman and sort of panning up and down and focusing on the breasts and so on in a way that really is so dated. <laughs> you know, and so, I mean, it was those things that... Um, we addressed and we learned from and we had to challenge. And I think it's a mistake to think that it was the more... I mean, obviously, if you look at some of the films of the 60s, you think, my God. But we were partly in that community, partly in that cultural world, but, um, you know, already rather far out of it because we'd been through 68. Yeah, I understand, yeah. So... And so what was the relationship to you make? Because, I, I mean, we're interested in the idea of consciousness raising and what you're describing is basically consciousness raising groups in a way in which women seem to, seem to have, you know, sort of raised consciousness. Yeah. Is, is that a phrase that would have been used at the time? Um, I think we did use American consciousness case? raising, um, but it does feel a bit dated now. But we did... But we did raise... We did raise consciousness. We did transform the way people and thought. And, and it and was... what did that mean? That meant, well, I mean, it meant talking about the subordination of the oppression of women nice. and talking and focusing on the liberation of women. Liberation politics was another route. So it was left politics and liberation politics that were absolutely the sort of ground from which we emerged. And, um, and it meant this expansion of political horizon. Yeah, well, it, it was like a lot of people have talked about a light, switching on a light, a sort of revelation, a kind of extraordinary, I didn't think about it, that everything fell into place. So it did feel like a very dramatic transformation. But from there, what followed was a bit more complicated sometimes. But people did change the way they lived, absolutely. And how did men relate to this thing? Because it's always, I mean, it's always been an issue, hasn't it? You, you, have, you have feminist consciousness raising groups, women's consciousness, but ultimately yeah. this is partly about changing a set of... Well, I think um, uh, some men were sympathetic and tried hard. Some men found it quite exciting that all the women were getting together and challenging everybody. And um, some men found it 
unacceptable and too difficult. I mean, in my Bell Size Lane group, I think at the beginning, the sort of core members um, were all with a man. One had already separated, but I think the rest of us were all still married because marriage was really what people did in those days. And by the end of the decade, none of them were. So, I mean, it was a kind of huge rupture. I was the last, actually, to split, I think, out of that small group. And um, it was incredibly challenging for everybody. I mean, that Bell Size Lane group was quite unusual. There were also links, not only with the left, and, um, but also with, for example, Bhagwan. So a lot of them went to this guru in India to explore, sort of exposing, transforming, living in different kinds of ways. So that was very attractive for a lot of people. And of course, that also broke up a lot of relationships. And uh, People can know about Bhagwan now because of the Netflix. Exactly. Well, the Netflix <laughs> thing, I mean, there were about five women in my in that group who took it very seriously, who went there. Some stayed there for many years and some came back. Sally Belfridge wrote a very interesting oh, book wow. about it. But she actually, um, and it's definitely worth having a look at, but she took it quite seriously. Yeah, so for the recording, if you don't know what we're talking about, what's Wild Wild Country on Netflix? Or yes. The Google of Osho on Bagwan. That's right. Osho. Uh, yeah, Paul, and he wasn't called Osho in those days. Yeah, and, uh, but we, we, called about, we talked about orange people. And I... Uh, so they were all, so they, I mean, he's a... He was a sort of neo-Vedantic, sort of neo-Hindu sort of teacher, sort of teacher of sort of yoga, you know, yogic meditation. Well, and completely sort of unrestrained, unrestrained sexual activity yeah. at all times of the day and night and stuff like that, and exposing, self-exposing, exposing your vulnerabilities. Right, right. And forcing people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise have done. So I remember one member of um, my group had the... It was 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 given the kind of what is it called the detail the the you know what happens in the when you're in the army that of cleaning all the toilets, so that was her job because she looked like somebody who was who had not often cleaned toilets, and uh, so you know it was a funny kind of mixture of humiliation uh, and ex- self exposure. That's and really interesting. Liberation. Because there's all this stuff going on at that time in the seventies, isn't there? I mean, there's that. There's things like, you know, the Black Panthers had what they call the struggle sessions where, you know, big where you kind of engage in self-criticism and you kind of accuse each other of things. And then the Maoists, obviously, have this practice of self-criticism and this idea that you really basically break down every trace of your bourgeois individualist ego by, you know, having yes. all, of your, all the ways in which you're not a perfect revolutionary kind of exposed and... Kind of exposed, and I think actually when we, you know, when we, you know, people sort of connected to ASFM, when we've talked about consciousness raising, that when we, the pushback we've had is that people think that's what we mean. People think, people are scared because they think, well, actually, that was the kind of dark side of the left in the 70s. And, and you're saying, and it's really interesting. I mean, so, I mean, so, I mean, in your work in terms, I mean, what was it people, what was it that people were looking for in both the Women's Liberation Group and then in Bagwan and these places? Okay. I mean, what was it they were looking for well, that pushed them in those directions? Um, let me come back to that in a minute, because right. I want to say something about black power, which I think okay. is very important. Um, I think the kind of politics uh, that we were all used to before feminism, for those of us on the left, were, uh, and it was predominantly students, middle class women who were involved in this movement in the early days, 
although there were some working class groups like the strikers at Fords and the night workers and so on. And there were black women. But I think one of the biggest influences on us was black power because it wasn't, it was on behalf, the new movement was going to be on behalf of ourselves. It wasn't going to be like the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign on behalf of others right, in a remote right. part of the world, a kind of anti-imperialist uh, or pro-civil rights or something like that. We had our civil rights in the formal kind of way, but what we were doing was acting on behalf of ourselves like black power people were. And so that was quite important. That was really a revelation. And, and it, sometimes it felt a bit uncomfortable because a lot of us felt a bit guilty about being privileged already. Right, right, right. So we had to sort of recognise and denaturalize our, our oppression. Right, right, right. And um, so that was one thing. And then what was the question? Oh, uh, the 70... Well, it wasn't all dark. I mean, there was... No, a... I don't think it was dark at all. No. I'm, I'm into it. Okay. <laughs> I think that's... But it was, there was also a lot of solidarity. And it's a question of what people are looking for. I mean, yes. Like you've sort of answered, but it's that, and you'd be in really nice terms. to say it a bit more. What are people, what are people looking for that in, in a concentration group in, in, in Tashla Park and in, in Bagwan? Oh, well, in Bagwan, I was not very well, sympathetic. what's the continuity? Uh, well, the continuity? I think there was about, about new beginnings, in a way, about stripping back our... Uh, uh, and it was all linked to a funny kind of psychoanalysis. I mean, uh, several of the people in all of these groups then later became psychotherapists or were already very involved. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we rejected Freud, but we all read it. Juliet Mitchell started that. I mean, there was a lot of work, a lot of engagement about... It was about discovering and uncovering and exploring um, what had been kind of hidden and uh, not exposed. In terms of your, the social construction of the yes, self. And, and the, the social psyche. construction of the and, self, and definitely. The and so, I mean, we did have joint movements. We did do things, um, but it was mainly about... And some of us ended up mainly writing. I mean, I was in the women's theatre group for three years in the middle 70s, and we went around doing plays for schoolgirls in... Uh, and sort of theatre and education about uh, 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 contraception and, you know, getting kids to be aware. Not So it was sort of more like um, sex as pleasure, but make sure you don't have babies kind of message to 15-year-olds, which is a bit dated in today's terms because it wasn't about sex as danger at all at that point. And uh, so that was another thing that happened. And then, I mean, just in personal terms and in terms of what a group provided, in 1977, I went to the Institute of Education to do a PhD. And we formed a group then of women PhD students and researchers. And that's still going. And we meet all the time. I mean, we meet every month or so, six weeks. Um, it's shrunk over the years. Some people have returned to Chile, returned to Greece, gone to Canada, <clears throat> but there's still a core of about six of us. So is that, are you all the same age or is yeah. it, has it renewed itself? No, 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 definitely all the same people. We've met together for 45 years. And has that been helpful? Incredibly. So we ended up being three psychotherapists and three professors. <laughs> well, one is both. And that's Leslie, you know, and so we are, and we've definitely supported each other. It's not been a very fraught group, unlike the Bell Size Lane one, which was all much more difficult. Uh, and it's been incredibly, we've been incredibly supportive to each other, and now we're reaching kind of old age and we're kind of negotiating decline. 
and um, you know some people are declining more than others and it's been and it's quite difficult and uh, so uh, yeah and, and so I think um, these and that had its roots in a kind of consciousness raising group that started in order to sort of explore the issues in academia uh, in, in the mid 70s so yeah <laughs> so um so um I, mean, I interrupted you. I think you've you've started, you've gone there anyway a bit. But I interrupted you when you started. You said the word solidarity. That was one of our favourite words. Yeah. Well, that and is. You were talking about the the fact that the the you know the experience of the left in the seventies wasn't just one of this sort of darkness, which I mean is very important for us. It's very important for our whole project actually that we think, and it's something people have been talking about. I think for several years now that this popular image is often was constructed for a long time of the seventies that it was all very dark compared to the shine the, the shiny. Oh, no. Loveliness of the late sixties, and it, oh, not it's punk as this kind of you know, but punk comes out of this dystopian yeah. moment. And you saying actually, there was you said there was a lot of solidarity. Right? Oh yeah, there was a tremendous amount of solidarity. But I think if you really heavily identify with something, like a women's group, when things are so tense and so explosive and so difficult, and like the women's theatre group, and like uh, feminist review, actually, very often there are splits because people so identify with these things. So there are problems, and it was such a passionate engagement. Um, very intense, but it was incredibly, I mean, solid. We also, we did things together, we produced plays, we went, uh, we, we, we went to Wales, we did uh, LSD together, we went to... Good. Yeah, very, you know, <laughs> that's what we like to hear yeah, on yeah. UCFN. So, you know, we did, <laughs> we did a lot of different uh, things and we did, and we certainly had, uh, you know, our kids got to know each other and um, we went on holidays together sometimes and some people formed closer relationships outside the group and some people were kind of close to people as, you know, in the group as a whole. And some people just fell away, but there was a, a solid core. I mean, there are some people in the Bell Size Lane group that still meet a tiny number. I don't know very much about it. No, no. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, yeah, so I became more of an academic. And so the second group from the Institute of Education was kind of more appropriate and it wasn't as it was like a a calm second marriage. <laughs> so what? So I mean, how did the the sort of um, sort of practice and constitution of these small groups? I mean, how did it sort of relate to the the wider idea of a, of a movement? Of a sort well, of a we had movement. Yeah, there was the general workshop, and there were publications. There was the women's liberation workshop. And, uh, and there were, you know, Shrew was one of the publications. Uh, we wrote stuff for Feminist for Spare Rib all the time. Um, we, uh, there was a some little sub-writing group in the Belsize Lane group that did fiction together. Um, there were, uh, and, and, and all, there were, people had engagements outside in the workplace, I was at LSE and I got very involved in feminist stuff at, at LSE. And in fact, I didn't do terribly well in my exams because I think I turned every single exam question around to answer it in, you know, with feminist material about absence and about, you know, you haven't looked at this and this is what, et cetera, et cetera. And they weren't the questions that were being asked. So um, I had to... 
And that was all very successful. I mean, ultimately, yeah. sort of transforming curriculum. Yes, I think that was the most. Exp- I think that was the most successful thing, actually. That and popularizing feminism through women's magazines and so on. So that after a while, people did do that. Some people objected, but that was later in the seventies and eighties. And certainly, the curriculum in universities was completely transformed by uh, feminism and that a, 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 a very large number of us went into academia and did that work and um, so both as I mean as students initially and then as as lecturers and I personally was in on the editorial board of Feminist Review but that was a bit later from 1983 to 1993 um, and then I uh, you know that sort of work takes its toll and a lot of time so, uh, but was incredibly rewarding, incredibly important, and I learned such a lot. And um, what do you think happened? I mean, I'm interested in now in the sort of how your experience or your perceptions relate to certainly this kind of received narrative that I sort of grew up with, I suppose, uh, which is that, um, you know, the women's liberation movement had this, you know, this period of creativity and dynamism and sort of forward motion and was part of the broad popularisation of sort of feminist ideas of, you know, with varying degrees of radicalness across the, the culture and then it just sort of fragments in the 80s under the pressures of, like, of certain kinds of identity politics. But is that is that accurate, do you think, or is it... Um, well, it certainly was no longer a single movement. I mean, we didn't have conferences. The big split was between radical feminists and socialist feminists. Right. And I mean, I was I challenged the idea of socialist feminism because I didn't think the two things went together in quite the way that some socialist feminists thought they did. So, do you want to? Can you elaborate that? A bit? Okay. Well. Uh, First, what what did the terms mean, radical feminism? Okay. Well, radical feminism was really a kind of separatist feminist feminism. Um, uh, and which believed that there was such a thing as a patriarchy and they were very anti-men uh, and anti-boys. Somebody told me the other day, where was I? Uh, that she went with a baby boy on a demonstration and was told to go away. And um, I mean, it, re- you know, they, they, it was crude, but it, it's less crude elements were that, uh, well, they got quite a lot done and they had a journal and so on, but I wasn't part of that group. I was part of the social feminism. And, and socialist feminism also included lesbians. It certainly wasn't uh, about sexual orientation or sexual identity, but it was, uh, uh, and socialist feminists on the whole thought, and we were all so embedded, so left-wing, that only uh, getting rid of capitalism would, uh, that, fem- that f- the sort of if, if women's oppression of women would only be overthrown with the overthrow of capitalism. Well, that seemed to me um, unlikely because uh, all of the examples around showed that women were still oppressed in the Soviet Union, in etc., etc. And uh, some people put that a little bit more theoretically. I think it was Mark Cousins who said capitalism is indifferent to the gender of its labour power. Um, when did he say that? Uh, in MF, I think. But when? Do you know when? Oh, where? When? 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 I'd say about um, 1980, okay. 70, earlier, a little bit earlier, because I started going to the 
uh, seminars in Birmingham in uh, in 1977. I don't know if you want all of this kind of rather more personal. No, I do. Yeah, we... um, uh, I went when I started my PhD at the Institute of Education. I went there because Diana Leonard was one of the very few women who could supervise PhDs in the country, and um, that's why she had quite a few feminists. But we were also quite critical of her because she did position herself on the radical feminist side. And she was very influenced by Christine Delphi, um, who was a French feminist. And they said that basically uh, there, uh, it, 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 the, the origins of women's oppression was the control in the domestic sphere right. by men. Yeah. And uh, that you could see that, and that persisted in many countries in the world, and so on. And I actually took that fairly seriously, and I said that you could have capitalists of oppression and that kind of domestic, uh, and I've forgotten the terms because I haven't read the, the books for so long. You, they could coexist. And that was my argument when I was at uh, in Birmingham at the centre, and I kept you putting mean the centre for contemporary culture. The centre for contemporary cultural studies. It, everything was so flexible in those days that even if you were uh, um, enrolled somewhere else, you could go to meetings there, and they were open. Nobody checked you at the door. Mm-hmm. And I went to the family group uh, that was actually coordinated at the time by Richard Johnson, mm-hmm. and um, and so we looked at the stru- the relationship of the family. I think it was called family school uh, to. Uh, capitalism and so on and so on and so I put forward I have a something that I wrote then about that sort of theoretical relationship um, between patriarchy and capitalism and we were, a number of us were very obsessed about that at one stage well I think it, people are interested in it again I think actually are they? I, mean, I think I mean you know um, I would say the kind of the, yeah, the, well, most of us, even people my age and younger, have mostly been taught that patriarchy was a sort of old fashioned concept and it wasn't, and it was sort of wrong for various reasons. And I think, but it's never gone away from sort of activist feminism as a, as a reference point. Yeah. And I think there's a number of us who would say, I don't think anyone's really writing about it very specifically, but partly because people, what definitely people are writing about and some of published books about is the idea of social reproduction as a, as a key kind of yes. frame for thinking about these things. And I think a lot of people do think that patriarchy is kind of a useful, that as long as you don't, I would say, at least certainly amongst people I know, the idea that patriarchy is not, I don't, I don't really know anyone who's working from a kind of classically rad femme perspective. I know people who engage in a, a kind of radical feminism, a different kind, I would say, which is a sort of extreme liberalism, really. But I think that the notion that you have to understand the interaction between patriarchy and capitalism as producing, as what produces yes. contemporary gendered experience, I think it, people are coming back to that idea. Right? Well, I think it was important, and I think there were links. I think what happened is that there was a moment when we kind of exhausted that debate and we moved on to sort of postmodernism and uh, lack of certainty about anything and so on. So, uh, you know, we kind of shifted with the sort of academic and intellectual fashions of the moment. But yeah, it was important at a certain moment and, and it was much debated in Feminist Review. And uh, I have one of my first published articles in Feminist Review goes through that because there were a couple or two or three uh, um, sociology of education books, women in education, that came out at the same time and I did a review. And uh, I think uh, that was in the early 80s, 1980, 80, I think. So... Um, but I wonder if one of the things is, I mean, it always seems to me, with sort of hindsight, that one of that, the reason I was so interested in that quote about capitalism being di- indifferent to the gender 
the, of, of the yeah. labour that it exploits is that it seems that's one of the that was one of the key things that shifts from the early. I mean, there's this moment in the early seventies which we're all kind of fascinated by. But one of the things that's always and one of the things I've always said to students is that one of the things that's now so sort of quaint about a lot of the stuff, and it comes out of gay liberation stuff as well, is this belief that you know by you, you, that you can't that you can't imagine a capitalism that normalises uh, and accepts yeah. you know queerness or all the all uh, all women's liberation. Exactly. And one of the things that's becoming clear really uh, in the eighties, in the early eighties, with the implementation of post Fordism and you know what we now call neoliberalism, is so that actually you can have. You can have yes. a capitalism which is indifferent to those things. And exactly. It, and people don't really get their heads around that for quite a long time. Right? No, yeah. I agree. Uh, but I was actually, I did push for it. <laughs> and I think that was partly the influence of Diana Leonard and a few people. Um, and that I had it a little bit more. But then I did argue against, for instance, Kath Hall and a few other people on Feminist Review. So uh, it was, but Anne Phillips wrote a very nice piece about it that kind of linked the two together that was worth returning to probably and I could find somewhere and um, so yeah it was a big debate and I agree I mean I think uh, it was obvious that feminism could accommodate because we had Thatcher already you know that feminism and, and capitalism could accommodate successful women and so on and so on and that things were shifting like that yeah absolutely so I agree, I agree that uh, it was problematic, and also because we could see that whatever social, wherever socialism had sort of operated to some extent, it certainly wasn't particularly progressive in terms of sexual politics. Right, right. Although it was at different moments. Right, right. But of course, I mean, the other side of this is that people become aware. I mean, one reason people are interested in all this stuff again now is that people can see the limits of that. There's exactly. A whole, there's a whole set of demands that are being yeah. made in the early 70s yeah. that, still, that, that can't be realised. Well, I, I, what's so interesting is that I think all of the Me Too stuff ignores the domestic sphere, ignores what goes on at home in terms of childcare, in terms of... I mean, people are, there's no doubt about it, that men are more conscious now about... And, you know, but there's a whole article this morning in this, this morning's Guardian about how Prince William is going to change nappies and things. So, you know, this is... Uh, it's taken for granted that men should, but it's also acknowledged that a lot of men don't. But at least it's part of the contemporary narrative about how you behave as a father and a mother and um but for instance sharing in a larger group has just disappeared the idea of collective sharing of communes of alternative ways has disappeared and i don't know how people manage because although there is much better child care on the state it's still minimal and it's extraordinarily expensive they recruit grandmothers uh you know, it's, it's, I don't know how they manage. Well, I think it's been made more difficult as well. I mean, part of, I mean, you know, my argument for a long time, I mean, it partly comes, just comes from my own experience, is that, you know, the, I mean, the, I mean, the, I mean, the commune movement was viable in the 70s, partly because it was the very, it was the end of the high moment of social democracy, because housing was much cheaper. Absolutely. There was a state of infrastructure and, you we know. We could I, buy big houses for very little and I, you know, I, yeah. and I always tell the story of like, Joe and I, we, we, Joe and I, we researched, you know, what if you wanted to set up a housing co-op in London in like 1999? And the yeah. answer is, well, you don't. Unless oh. you've got, unless someone's going to, unless, you, unless you've inherited a million exactly. quid, you're not going to do that. And, uh, you know, in 1965 or whatever it was, 70, you know, houses were available at a very low price. They did go up uh, in the following decade and large houses were there. And people, the other thing is that uh, Shelley, 
Shelley Wirtis introduced uh, us to the idea of bourgeois solutions. She said, we have a bourgeois solution, we have an au pair. Well, a lot of uh, young middle-class parents could afford to have au pairs because there were loads of people from abroad who wanted to come and live in London and learn English, and especially with kind of, uh, you know, trendy sort of young families, and in our case, we did have a whole lot of people living in the house that we lived in, because there were several flats and it belonged to, it was a kind of family house, and it was full of sort of students and actors and artists and so on. So you got people who were extremely nice who would come and live there and share childcare. And uh, for very little money, I mean, compared with today. So, you know, there were solutions that were available to people at that time that are absolutely not available now because of the situation with cost of housing, really. Well, that's so interesting because one of the things um, we keep coming back to in these discussions that have come out, this about acid Corbynism, so project and discussions, this is this idea of the, the right to the city. And, um, and I've already sort of suggested that maybe this year, the, the festival, in, uh, the World Transform this year, that, that should be our main focus and we should try and... We talked about producing some sort of pamphlet about it because I think cause it keeps coming back and again and again. And I think, and it's really interesting because I don't think we've quite thought about that gendered dimension of it actually. That I mean, I have said in some sort of meetings and things, well, the right to the city, it means the right to experiment with forms of household, the right to live how you want to live in the city and not be forced into a particular way. But of course, that's absolutely crucial to thinking about these issues of social reproduction and gender. There's a limit. The, 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 the neoliberalisation of the cities actually puts a limit on, on the aspirations Absolutely. in terms of how you, you, how you reorganise social reproduction. I, I, I'm, when Pepe and I split in 78, um, at the end, towards the end of the 70s, you know, we decided that we would move, we were able to sell that house and we would move to east where houses were an awful lot cheaper and we got too quite close to each other. Um, he lived in Kentish Town, I lived here, and this house cost £28,000. Yeah, this, this mansion in Tuffle Park <laughs> that I'm sitting in. <laughs> I mean, um, and I deliberately got a big house so that um, other people could live in the house and it wasn't just me and the kids. And so there were other friendly adults um, who, you know, my kids were bigger at that time and they could take themselves to school on their own and, you know, but there were always somebody to cook a meal. Every evening somebody cooked a meal. And, uh, you know, they would be around uh, if somebody would be around in the house if I was out. And that was really, really important. And that, that we did have a similar arrangement in the other house, but not as developed because my then husband, my uh, the father of my kids, wasn't as keen on it as I was. Um, but yeah, and they were quite commonplace. And that had to do with the housing market, really, as much as anything else. No, that is really interesting. I mean, that is really interesting. And it, it sort of relates to stuff that Keir, you know, we do the podcast with, has been writing about as well, about ideas of adulthood. Uh, I mean, the other thing, this is very much, I think this is probably something that was sort of laid on sort of my generation, so Generation X, you know, more, more than any others, that what the mark, that the mark of adulthood was leaving the shared house to go into the private space, which, um, you know, which is a thing we didn't want to do. We thought we didn't want to do, Joe and I, and then we found out we had to. We had to if we didn't want to bring up kids in a, in a situation where a landlord could throw us out like any time. Yeah. They felt like it, and that's all the product. And that's something that's really, it is, it's a really, it's a really, it's a, been a repeated theme so many, so many of these discussions. I mean, 
we had a, we had a, one of the seminars in Hackney. We had Lynn and Keir talking about this recently, and these are the idea that sort of shared housing, co-housing, should be something that's possible for people, should be possible long term if they want it. It should be something that's available, and it shouldn't be marked as infantile. It seems really important. I don't think it was marked. I, I, we actually, in the Belsites Lane group, in the early days, um, saw there was a, a row of houses for sale in uh, the other side of, sort of towards West Hampstead, Belsize Road, I think it's called, or one of the um, sort of, you know, west of the Finchley Road. And we did think about buying them. But it would have meant giving up a lot sure. and investing a lot and making a huge commitment and, well, it didn't happen. But we did look at it because we thought, you know, a, 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 we wanted to be able to share. We wrote, there was an article, which, and I've got the, the uh, I'll show it to you in a minute, um, of, you know, what, how you, when you share a house, you, you don't need, you know, 10 washing machines. You can make do with one or two and you don't need 10 kitchens and, and so on and so on so that you could really share things. And that was the idea and that was the ideal. But of course, it didn't quite happen, and I was lucky because I did have something that I'd inherited. But you know, some people really gave up ownership, and some people hung on to it. So you're never going to get a really equal uh, share, house. No, no. But you do get other friendly adults who are very willing. Who at that point were very willing to live in this house. And I mean, Nick Rose lived here in the early days, and other people. Uh, there was a string of sort of interesting intellectuals and uh, filmmakers and who had a big influence and drama people. I mean, they were really, my kids certainly remember some of the people who lived in the house with us with great affection. I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask as well, what, I mean, what, you know, if somebody was establishing Consciousness Raising Group today, like, it, would, would you think, would it be any different? From, do you think it would or should be any different? Or, it, or do you, you might feel you're the wrong person to ask because you've been, you've, you've still got yours. But, um, you know, what, do you think it would be a useful thing for people to do today? I, uh, yes. I mean, I think what it does is it produces a kind of solidarity and a kind of enduring friendship. And it's sort of a bit, I mean, it overlaps with things like group therapy, of course. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, it has, can have some of the same crises of, you have to be considerate and thoughtful and, and all of those things. But I think those are embedded in the, uh, you know, that we, in the current group, we have a, even now, even now, I mean, sometimes we have a general discussion about politics of the day, but we always give each other a little bit of space. So we go around the room and we say, okay, what's been happening with you? Because some people tend to talk more than others. And so we kind of structure in a little space for everybody to talk about themselves. And that just has become the habit of our particular group and maybe one of the reasons why it's endured for and, nearly 50 years. And do you think it has to be, I mean, because one of the things we're interested in and we don't really know actually whether this is, is doable or not, whether it's a format which can only only operates in the context of women's liberation, and it has to be just gender segregated, or whether it's a format or or, or a type of practice. I think people do reading books, uh, book groups, and I have a feeling that they're kind of similar up to a point. You know, it's a sort of sense that something brings you together and um, something endures, and it's a shared something that you're committed to um that is sort of outside your immediate work i mean richard is in a book group and they read some very interesting stuff and it's a funny eccentric sort of mix of people in my women's group we were all feminists but we have different sort of national and class backgrounds right right 
and um, that emerges at different points. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarromedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media, media for a different politics.